I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hey, John. How's it going? I'm doing well. I'm so excited. Today is another one of our interviews, and today we get to talk to one of my very dear friends, the fantastic Beth Grimmett Tankersley. Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we talk about everything that is relevant to this podcast, I want to take a little bit of time to kind of get your musical background because you yourself are a pianist. And so I'm curious to know, did you start on the piano? Like, when did you start? What was your life before music like? How did you come to join this horrible, horrible business? <laughs> um, so yeah, I kind of been obsessed with it since I came out. Um, I keep a picture of myself on my stand of me as like a baby on the piano, like a bald baby. Um, it's just, I've always just been drawn to it. I started taking lessons when I was about six and then I started playing professionally, which, you know, I paid, got paid for it when I was about 14, um, it's from a small town and not a lot of pianists. So started working in church and, um, yeah, it just, that's what I've been doing ever since. Uh, I briefly played like saxophone and horn in um, high school and wasn't super great at it I but I didn't give it the love that I gave piano because that's what I love um so yeah it, it's literally my whole life and then so you have a bachelor of music in piano pedagogy yes I do I'm curious because I've not seen this specific degree before is that I imagine it's different from like a performance degree or even perhaps an ed degree so I'm curious what that specifically is. Yeah, so um, I did the piano pedagogy degree at University of Oklahoma, which is one of the top schools for pedagogy. Um, And I started out as a performance major, switched over about two years in because I felt like it it was a better fit for me. Um, We did all of the stuff that a performance major would do um, with the exception of subbing out a few classes, like I took classes focused on piano teaching rather than like say orchestration, stuff like that. And then we, we did like um, a two-year internship there at the school where we actually were like hands-on with kiddos teaching private lessons and then also in a lab setting. Hmm. Um, and I found that I had a kind of a natural aptitude for teaching. My mom's a teacher. Um, and so it just felt like a better fit, but I still feel like I got the piano you know, performance aspect of it too. Yeah, it, it felt more functional for me to do that. And it is different than Ed in that you really are specifically talking about teaching piano in a studio setting. And the, the school had this amazing um, piano pedagogy resource library and with every method ever conceived and every book about teaching piano ever conceived um, and just some really phenomenal instructors who are, um, who, who have been like kind of pioneers in the field. So uh, yeah, it made a lot of sense for me to go that way. And I'm glad I did. I think it has, it's been really helpful in 
transitioning into being a coach and, 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 you know, starting to teach more that way. Um, it's all sort of melded together. So then that, that brings me to my next question, because you got your master's of music in collaborative piano at the North Carolina School of the Arts, which is where we met. So yes. was that, a, did you want to shift from being a teacher into being more of a collaborative partner or were you viewing it more as uh, heading towards that coach path and, and kind of continuing being a teacher, but in a slightly different vein of things? Well, it was interesting because when I, I graduated um, and I, I taught, I had like a little in-home studio for a while after I got my bachelor's. Um, I, I discovered I didn't love doing the in-home studio thing. Um, so I really focused on accompanying and I didn't, I took like a seven year hiatus between the bachelor's and the master's and um, worked as an accompanist for most of it. And that sort of led me to doing collaborative work but this is I'm really good at this but my thought was sort of um teaching collaboration um and like the pedagogical aspects of that that was what really interested me and sort of why I went that direction it wasn't necessary I never really saw myself as a coach I just sort of that sort of happened um it's, I think that makes sense when you are a collaborative pianist that it, it sort of works that way. Um, but that was sort of my thinking when I transitioned into, into collaborative role. Um, and then it, again, it's just sort of with, with coaching, it's all sort of like coming to this, you know, weird amalgam, I think. Yeah. Do you have interest now in, in being the person who, teaches this skill of like being a collaborative pianist? I do, um, I, because I think, and, and something I've noticed, I, once I, I got to Seattle, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure, and I started working at the University of Washington and it was more of a coach capacity, but what I learned is that the piano majors there didn't really have a sense of being a collaborator with all the other stuff that you can do as a pianist. And so, I very much want to impart that on, on pianists. Like this, these are the sorts of skills that you need to have and the sorts of things that you, you can develop with what you already have. It's just your, you know, your classical chops and how we can integrate those into being an accompanist, being a collaborator. Um, and I think that there are ways to like really think about that pedagogically. How do we teach that? How do we teach, you know, reading a orchestral reduction? How do we teach, you know, listening to the whole instead of just listening to yourself on the piano? Um, what are the processes for that? I'm really fascinated by it and, and definitely see myself in that role at some point when I get off of the tour. <laughs> So did you have any interest in musicals and musical theater growing up? Like, did you play for musicals while you were in Oklahoma? I played Oklahoma a lot. Imagine that. <laughs> I don't love it. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> That's so the fair. Degree, I think is actually very cool. And um, I'm kind of stoked about that. But um, I, it was hard to get into the business when I was in Oklahoma, just because it's very small there, the world's small and it's, it was hard to break in. 
Um, I've always loved classical music, music more. I just, that's where I'm drawn. But I also just love making music in general. And the more that I've become experienced in the theater, the more that I am drawn to musical theater. But I wouldn't say that that was my, my goal. It's just, it's just sort of happened. How did you end up, because I don't think it was the first time we worked together, but I think the closest that we worked together while we were in school was on the production of She Loves Me that I ended up conducting that you were... Mm-hmm. Were you the first keyboard for the second? Okay, so Damon yes. was was the first. Yeah. So how, how did you end up playing for She Loves Me? You came up to me in the hallway and you were like, hey, we need somebody to come play this. And it has like a lot of sounds and stuff and like pedals. And do you think you could do it? And I was like, sure, why the hell not? I'll try. <laughs> and Beth, that's why I love you. It's exactly what happened. I'll never forget it. You're right there in the hall in front of the bathrooms. And I had no, uh, God, that I love telling that story, by the way, it was, it was such a hilarious experience. I knew that I needed to do it because I knew that this was something that it was a skill I wanted to have. Um, and at that point, I was just like gathering all of the experiences I could to build my skill set. And what I'd never, I'd never seen a keyboard rig. I had no idea what like a patch change pedal was or an expression pedal or any of the things. And I will never forget our first rehearsal and Kevin Stites was there and we got through like the first part of rehearsal and he came over to me and he just like put his hand in front of my music and he goes, more notes, honey. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. I'm, not doing... I'm sorry. It's terrifying and hilarious. And I remember locking myself in his little closet office over by the dance studios and just learning how to do that rig, just the choreography of it and um, how it worked and how it was different from just a regular piano. Um, that, that was my first like intro into it. Once I figured out I could do it, you know, it obviously became a lot less intimidating, but I really just had to sit down and just figure it the hell out. So since we're talking about it, let's talk about it. Can you tell our our listening audience like how particularly contemporary musical theater keyboard parts differ from like standard orchestral keyboard parts or the solo rep that you're used to playing as a pianist? Yeah, so it's, you're a lot more of a rhythm section. The works that I've done musical theater wise, the keyboard parts are largely rhythm driven and they're kind of they're kind of the the churning like motion that makes everything else happen um so you don't I wouldn't say you have a lot of big expansive solo lines or anything that's particularly lyrical I mean sometimes you do but for the most part I am playing rhythm whether that is you know like kind of big arpeggiated things. It's always just to keep things in constant motion. That's sort of the function of a key one. In the show I'm in right now, in Mean Girls, um, it's a big part, but it, it, it really carries the whole orchestra because it was written, uh, Jeff Richmond wrote it as a keyboard, like just on the piano first, and then they orchestrated it out. Um, so what I play is largely what Jeff, wrote in the you know in the beginning stages and it I basically play everybody's part and they sort of double me um 
but it's not like I'm particularly prominent in a lot of ways, but it's, it's always there and it's just always keeping things going, you know? So I, yeah, I would say differs in that you're not really a lyrical player. You're a rhythm player. It's also, and I, I don't know if it's the case for the keyboard one book on Mean Girls, but I know it was certainly the case for the keyboard two book and She Loves Me. You mentioned those patch changes and the expression. What you're playing does not sound like a piano, but you're you're using the keyboard to run through a program to create a bunch of other sounds that are programmed on a computer. And, and as you said, you have to use a foot pedal or something to switch through different patches and different sounds is that I mean I imagine it takes some adjustment to get used to to not hearing what you're used to hearing as you're physicalizing the notes a lot of times because you're covering so many different instruments a lot of times to uh the way that uh, the sound design is is that like you might be playing just one you know you might be playing one octave but it sounds three octaves higher you know or I have, I have a friend who was telling me a nightmare story of like playing this like chromatic line and it was just a single chromatic line, but the way it was written was that it sounded like in chromatic thirds above it. And that's just, it sort of just screws with your head because what you see and what you know your hands are doing are not what you're hearing. Um, I think my training as a collaborative pianist and learning how to imitate other sounds like when you're playing an orchestral reduction like this is what strings need to sound like this is what horns need to sound like and and now that i play an instrument where it really does actually sound like that i'm able to um sort of employ those techniques into a way that makes it sound more like what it's supposed to sound like i think playing strings on a keyboard is probably the hardest thing um, we have what's called an expression pedal, and that basically is your volume. It's your volume, and it really helps you when you're playing string patches because it allows you to swell in and out like a string section would, to taper things down. It gives you a lot more range of volume expression that we can't get because our volume on the keys comes out of our arms and our hands. And you have to start letting your foot do that work, um, which is a whole other, it, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's a wild thing to kind of get used to. Um, but you're doing that and then you're, you're constantly hitting that pedal and you're going from like different instrument to different instrument all the time. Like I'll go from a piano sound to a string sound, to a celeste, to a Hammond B3 organ in a page, you know? So how do you, you, you know it's coming and then you have to employ different techniques, different ways of touching the, the keyboard to get the sounds that you want. Um, it just takes, it takes practice and getting used to, but I think that it helps. I, I know that it has made me a much more whole listener. Um, and I think, a lot, it helps a lot of my understanding of what other instruments need and what they do. Um, it is a very strange sensation to um, be a horn section on a piano. Real weird. I, I know that uh, you, you mentioned that you are 
inherently more drawn to kind of more classical or traditional ensemble repertoire. And I know that you've done a lot of work with opera companies. I'm curious, having had all the, the musical theater experience that you have now, how do you feel about that kind of use as the keyboard as an orchestra in a way that they can't have because of their pit limits limitations versus just like the opera orchestra writing for the instruments as they are? Well, I mean, in terms of job security, I'm like, yay, <laughs> great, <laughs> I have a part to play. Um, in terms of the sound, I, pref I prefer a big old string orchestra. I, when Mean Girls was on Broadway, um, and this is something you'll find in tours a fair amount. When Mean Girls was on Broadway, they had a string section and we don't tour with strings or higher strings now. So all of that transferred into the keyboards. And while our sound designer makes a killer string sound, I mean, it's just really, it's really great. It, it number one depends on how you play it, but number two, it, do, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't take the place of the actual physical orchestral sound. Um, it can't, it, it can't create not only the sound, but I think, the sensation that you feel when you hear that in, in an entire string section. It's a very physical thing as well as an, an aural thing, I think. Um, and there's no, in my opinion, no substitution for that. But I understand why that has to happen, you know, especially in a touring show. You just, you are working within budgets and a lot of times working within a very small space, working in some really small pits that are not going to fit a lot of people in it. Every time I've had to deal with musicals where a good portion of the orchestral sound is coming through a keyboard, the amount of faith you have to have in yes. your sound designer. Yes. Because it, you know, for, for me and for John and for you, you know, we all trained as, as classical musicians who are used to physically making the sound and actually controlling the sound with everything yeah. that we do. And to just have it all be like a computer program that we're trusting some other individual to run. Uh, I don't know, as a conductor, I'm a control freak. And it's it's very concerning for me to have to just let that go to another person. Exactly. And I, you know, there are, like I said, our sound designer is amazing. And like his full orchestral sounds are great. And, and you get a little bit of control in that you control it with the expression pedal. So you can kind of do that. But there are some times where like you've got some solo violin patches and I don't ever want to knock, knock our guy because he's incredible. But um, sometimes it just doesn't work and it doesn't sound great. And you, you, there's, there's no way to attack it that makes it sound great. And you just have to deal with the fact that that sounds like a, a shitty digital violin. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and it, it, you're right. You just kind of have to like see that, that desire and that control to want that. Um, and that, you know, it, it's frustrating, but you know, we just deal. Yeah. It's, we did ragtime here at Piedmont Opera uh, this past season. And ragtime is, is one of the early shows that started to use this sort of keyboard as auxiliary mm -hmm. orchestra idea. And some of the patches in that show are utterly horrendous. And <laughs> Jamie Albright and the conductor was just like, cut that, cut that, just don't play that. Just leave out those notes like left and right. He was like, I'm not having these hideous sounds in my show. <laughs> Mm -hmm. We have one in particular, so we, this, in our show, um, and I think we'll probably talk about it in a little bit, but we hire um, a substitute on the key two part 
just as kind of a buffer and also to allow our key two player, who's also the associate music director, to be able to go up and conduct as part of his contract. Um, and without fail, there's a few patches every time they, every one of them ask, is this broken? This is, something's wrong with this. Nope. It's just how it is. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> is this broken? So oh, funny. <laughs> So I'm curious, you talked about you are currently sitting in the Keys 1 chair for the Mean Girls Tour. In addition, you are also the conductor swing for the tour, is that correct? Yeah. Um, I'm familiar with the term from an actor standpoint. I've never actually heard that with regards to anything in the pit. What is what what is that? How does that so, work? Um, I, it's something I recently started doing. I made my conducting debut two weeks ago. And um, it was crazy, um, but I'm basically a vacation swing. And what that means is that when our, um, our either our music director or our associate are on vacation, I will like, for instance, if our music director goes on vacation, our associate would move into the music director position. I would move into the associate position and then contra contractually, I would have a few shows that I would conduct, which gives him time to either go out in the house and listen. We try to get the conductor out in the house to listen um at least once a week to just hear how things are going or to give them a night off it really i am just um making sure that the bench is deep and if i need to pop in in an emergency i'm there to do that but unlike um the swings that we have our actor swings who um can pop in in the middle of a show or you know they don't really know day to day where they're going to be i my schedule is a little more fixed um, just because I'm more of a vacation cover. Um, but yeah, I, I'm able to pop in if I absolutely have to. Um, and it's just a way for us to have more flexibility in that area so that people can take time off. That's something we've noticed that's difficult. Um, when you don't have a lot of coverage, it's hard for you to get a night off. I had my first night off in four months last week. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I almost forgot what that was like. Wow. Went That's... out to dinner. Holy shit. What, what? <laughs> now, when you do move up to the podium, what happens to the Keys 1 seat? Does that then become a local hire or? The Keys 1 is not really something that we can hire out locally. So either um, we'll play what we call musical chairs and um, one of the other two conductors will move into that spot. Or we have a, a few folks that play the show on Broadway that um, will come in. Like for when I when I go on vacation, we'll have a gal who's played it previously that's going to come in. But yeah, if in an emergency we have a list of folks that know the key one part, they can come in and just nail it because they've already done it. That is typically how we handle it. But okay. between the three of us, as because um, we have three keyboards in our pit, and between the three of us, we all know each other's part. So we're all able to move interchangeably when we need to. I'm also curious about physical, your, your physical setup. I mean, you've talked a little bit about with the various pedals and everything. I also know that music theater in general, but especially, especially touring and Broadway, there are very definite rules about what you can and can't do. 
Mm-hmm. As as the touring musician for the keyboard, is it basically you come in, everything is set up and you play? How much yep. do you have with your your setup that is you versus someone who else on the show? Our um, our props crew uh, sets up the pit for us. Um, we, I and the associate um, music director are paid extra to do a load in, which is we set up all of our pedals. We set up um, like our own chairs and stuff um, and just make sure that all of that is where we need it to be. But everything else is set up for us. Um, the only thing we really, I mean, my load in and load out procedure is maybe 15 minutes because it's literally just unplugging pedals and, and, and putting that kind of stuff up. That's really the only load in I have to do. The heavy lifting goes to our props crew um, and they get all of the pit set up for us and our rehearsal, our rehearsal setup. They do that as well. Um, so yeah, I just have a, a small load in. I'm curious before we, we get too much further down the road, mm-hmm. how did you come to be a part of this tour to begin with? Because you, you, you finished your master's and you moved to Seattle. You did not go to New York and like no. chase down Broadway. You, you, you headed to the complete opposite side of the country. So how did you land in this position? It was not even remotely in the plan. I really fell into it as backwards. I mean, I really did. Um, I, so I started playing musical theater at the Fifth Avenue in Seattle in 2019. I got a call to play um, a new musical called Austin's Pride and they needed somebody with classical chops who could play an actual acoustic piano. Anyway, that's how I got my name into sort of the roster of keyboard players. In last, see, last November, I was called by the contractor in Portland, Oregon, where Mean Girls was was coming. And he said, look, our local um, is not able to do it. I'm kind of having a hard time finding someone. Do you want to drive down and do it? And I was like, that sounds fun. It's a national tour. It sounds like it'd be fun. So I was hired as the key two sub. And I came in and I played the rehearsal. And then the next day, Chris Kong, our music director, was like, our Q1 is moving on to Moulin Rouge. Do you want to come on tour with us? And I was like, okay, that sounds fun. <laughs> Literally, that's how it happened. It was so random. I wasn't thinking of it. I wasn't pursuing tour. I was not, you know, I have a lovely home and a husband and dogs and Seattle and I'm 40 and I definitely didn't it was not in the realm of possibility. And then he, I was like, I just, I really liked the show. I really liked the, the local, uh, I mean, not the locals, but the touring musicians. And it just, it just worked. It just really was right place, right time, truly. But it also had to do with me being on the roster as um, somebody who could handle, you know, a musical theater keyboard part in a pit, um, which, you know, it was just a matter of me getting a few shows under my belt in Seattle. Um, but truly, it w- I didn't, I did not seek it out. It just happened. I know that's not helpful, but it really is how it happened. Well, that's sometimes truth, though. Yeah, that's how it works out. I mean, Crazy. everyone's path. Yeah. So now, c- correct me if I'm wrong, but you hadn't really been a conductor prior to this point. So how did you make the additional leap then from, from being on the keys roster to, to being a conductor swing? So I, so I, um, I've done a few little things in Seattle, but the, the music, uh, 
music supervisor at the Fifth Avenue Theater, Matt Perry. He um, was in New York forever and then moved out to Seattle to take this gig. And after I met him doing Austin's Pride, um, he kind of started pushing me into a, a MD music director sort of role. And it, it, again, it was not something that I even had on my radar, but he was like, I think you could do this. And I kind of want to pursue that. And then he hired me when, when we came back from the pandemic, he hired me to be um, associate, associate music director for Beauty and the Beast at the fifth. And that way I was able to get a lot more experience and I've been training with him, but it really truly was a matter of Matt being like, you should do this. So I'm just going to push you this way. I didn't even ask for it. He was just sort of insisted. And then when I took this gig, I didn't take it with the idea that I would be conducting, but our music supervisor for this show, Mary Mitchell Campbell, she was like, do you want to conduct? Do you want to go that route? And I was like, okay. And she was like, cool. So we'll just work on it. We'll put you in. It'll be great. Literally. Do you want to? Sure. Okay. And so I just started working on it. Um, watched a lot of videos of people who had done it previously and, and got a lot of tips and tricks from my colleagues who were conducting Chris Kong and Benedict Braxton Smith, who were both fabulous at it. Um, and um, yeah, they literally, when they hired me, do you want to conduct? Sure. Okay. So here we are. <laughs> now, th this is a show that you, as a conductor, you still have a keyboard part that you were playing, correct? Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like how, how involved is that part? And like, how much are you using your hands to conduct versus, you know, you have to play the piano. It's interesting. The, it, the key three book is also the conductor book. And it's kind of um, sort of icing on the cake. It's, a, a, but occasionally the key three book carries um, moments where it, it needs to be very integrated with what the actors are doing on stage. The conductor needs to be able to see and, and respond in that way, then the key three book will maybe take the piano part in that point. So, because they're actually the one who can see it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, if I could put a percentage on it, I would say maybe 40, 60 playing to conducting. Um, and it's mostly extraneous like string parts or maybe a little chalesse here or there, or maybe like kind of a low like synth bass at times. It's not, I wouldn't say it's not nearly as demanding as the keyboard one or two book, but there are a few points where if you miss it, it's okay. Nobody's going to know, but if, there are also key points that like you really need to be on it because like you're the only one playing and that's because you're the contact point there with the, right. with the stage. Um, it's interesting in that I've had to learn how to conduct with one hand and play with the other. Um, if you're playing with both hands, we, we do a lot of head. Um, that's, so I've had to learn to use my body in that way. Um, then we also have to contend with the fact that we also have to change patches. And then we have an Ableton, which is, it runs our um, click track. This show is about 85% click. Um, so for anybody listening who doesn't know, that's, you know, basically you have a metronome in your ear that's controlling the tempo. And that's just because we have a lot of animation on our set. The entire set is like an LED screen, essentially. And um, 
So it, it almost looks like a hybrid TV show, stage show. Um, but a lot of that has to be coordinated and timed just perfectly. And then we also have um, several tracks in, in lots of our shows that, because we have a lot of hip hop, um, we have some like, you know, mock Lion King sounds. So we use pre-recorded tracks in some of that um, mm. to just provide extraneous sound. We also, a um, little bit of vocal sweetener at times when dancers, because they're dancing their butts off, the choreo is so involved in the show um, that we have a little bit of vocal sweetener also. So that's why we have to maintain it on click. But I think probably the biggest part of my job as the conductor is making sure we get the button pressed when it needs to be pressed, exactly the beat it needs to be pressed. And that's, I think that's the most stressful thing, honestly, you know, when you kick off Apex Predator in the middle of a slow song, like nobody wants that. It's really awkward. You just really have to like that. I think that's probably <laughs> the hardest and it has happened. I didn't do it, but it has happened. Um, but that's, um, it's really the choreography of, I play here, I press here, I use my feet here, I'm waving here, um, and just getting that down pat, you know? It, it's, it, there's a lot of components to it, but I would say, and I was told, like, if you have to give up something, you can give up what you're playing. I hate working with clicks. It just, it drives me nuts. How, how is that adjustment like for you? Mind because I mean, I practice in metronome all the time, so it kind of suits me in a way. But I, the other thing that we have to contend with, which I think is what makes the click important in the show, is that a lot of times our setup in the pit is such that you can't really see the conductor where they are on the podium. And so we have monitors on every stand that is a video of us, but there's like a delay in the monitor. So that's that's difficult. What what they're seeing in your downbeat is not necessarily exactly in time. And that's why the, that's where the click becomes important. Um, because if you, if they're following me in the screen, they're not going to be, they're going to be behind. So it's a, it's a mixture of them really tuning into that click to make sure everything is just rock solid. And then also me anticipating that I'm delayed and having, I have to conduct a little bit faster than what I'm hearing. And that is crazy. It's crazy. I've and had, I'm so used to it. It's I've so had hard. to do very similar. Uh, all of the offstage conducting that I've had to do in my operatic work. It's yeah. sort of the same thing minus the click except I'm following a monitor that I know is a little bit delayed and yep. we're singing backstage so I know our sound is a little bit behind so I have to be like an eighth note ahead of whatever yep. the live tempo is that I'm seeing from the monitor and it is it does it really messes with your mind it's a it's skill a you have to work hard to master yes yes but for me the click is security for me honestly um I think I think a lot of times it can feel a little um, like restrictive. In our show, I actually am really glad to have it because it it keeps things where they need to be and and gives us a sense of security. Yeah. Well, and especially, I mean, for your show, I, I have not seen it, but based on what you just described with all the animations and everything, you know, it, I can't imagine how you could just trust that on gut feeling and musical instinct yeah. for everything to stay. No, it just line. has to. 
Yeah, it just has to be lined up perfectly. And again, with 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 the amount of additional track that we have running, it's just it's just a necessity. You know, it would I think it would absolutely train wreck without the click. Um, not, and like I said, it's 85% of the show. So the more lyrical songs are not clicked. And I, I like that. I like that, you know, we're able to push and pull as we need, um, which is obviously not something you can do with a click. But our click actually can kind of push and pull too. It's designed that way. So it might, you know, bump up like two notches and like, you know, over two measures or something like that. You know, there's little adjustments that it's always making so that, it feels, it doesn't feel like we're on a click, really. John, I feel like you should ask the next question. I've talked a lot. Okay. <laughs> He's tired I talking love, to me. I love, your, I love your beautiful bass voice, so it's always okay. <laughs> it is so resonant and lovely. It is. Um, <laughs> uh, taking a step back, uh, more about touring life. Yeah. You, um, you talked about uh, local musicians basically what you travel, what, what does Mean Girls travel with versus what do you bring in for a sit down? Um, there's five of us in the touring bands. There's um, three keyboards, a guitar and drummer. We don't just travel five. with a bass. Uh-huh, just five. Uh, we don't wow. travel with a bass player. We hire the bass player out, um, which I feel like as a rhythm section, I would love for us to, to travel with a permanent bass player. I don't know why we don't, um, but um other than that, we hire out two, locally, we hire out two read books, two brass books, a bass, an auxiliary percussion, a guitar two, and then a keyboard two sub that is, we'll get one or two shows everywhere we go. Um, we um, do a four hour rehearsal on Tuesdays. We, we, usually, we travel on Mondays, get where we're going do a four hour rehearsal with our locals on Tuesdays. They get an advance book, probably three or four weeks in advance of the show. Um, we do that. Um, then we'll do a sound check with them where the key two sub gets to come in to play at sound check and, and feel that out. Um, the key two sub will come and audit a show just to see how it all works and watch the other key two play it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's generally how it works. We, we hire out the majority of the band locally touring i mean physically touring you probably see all types of venues oh, yeah. um where where have been some of your favorite places to sit down to do a show versus places that you haven't necessarily enjoyed quite as much kennedy center was amazing we were there for three weeks that was my second week of tour kennedy wow. center um Fun story about that. Second week of tour, our second day at the Kennedy Center. And um, you all, the, are you familiar with Apex Predator from the show? It's it's kind of, it's, you know, it's it starts out with sort of a cold play kind of cool keyboard vibe. And I started it on a harpsichord. <laughs> right Love in the middle of the center with the local Kennedy Center musicians who were our orchestra. And I was like, that's me. Welcome. Um, no, the Kennedy Center was great. Such an incredible facility. Um, had a lot of amenities for us. Great. We love it when there's a musician's lounge with like a kitchen and lockers. And a lot of times we don't have that at all. And they kind of stick us in the basement somewhere. And that's awkward. Um, we just played at the Fox in Atlanta, which uh, super old, super cool. Um, love that. The venue in Detroit, I feel, is not big enough for a musical. 
Um, there is a Fox in Detroit. We weren't there. We were at a different venue. And while aesthetically I loved it, we actually had to cancel our first show, our, our, our opener, um, because we couldn't get it loaded in. There literally had to change props and take things out and take costume changes out because there was no room for us. We had actors getting changed in the stairwells. Our wow. drummer was, um, oftentimes our drummer can't be in the pit with us because he's in a booth and his kit's pretty big. And um, a lot of times he's like in the basement or he's in a room behind the pit. Um, in Detroit, he was on the fourth floor in a dressing room. And his, his booth wouldn't fit in there. So everybody else on that floor had to hear him the whole time. It sucked. It sucked. It sucked. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to offend anybody who might, you know, love that theater. Because, again, aesthetically, it was great. The pit was super small. It was hard. You know, if you have a small pit, it's really difficult because you're all kind of crammed in on each other. Um, we have so much equipment that's got to go down there. Yeah. For I, Something I think I've noticed is that the older theaters, while incredibly beautiful and, and historic and they're my faves often the backstage area or the pit area is a real beast to contend with and makes life pretty difficult for our crew um the newer theaters have taken that into account and are a lot easier to deal with in terms of how much space we have um yeah right now we're at bass hall in fort worth and it's beautiful um and the facility is great and we have a lot of space and, and it's, it's awesome. Would not want to play at the theater in Detroit again. <laughs> was, um, or um, let's see where else, Schenectady. Schenectady wasn't great, you know, but we find ourselves in these rant, Green, uh, Greenville, North, South Carolina, Greenville. That's right. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous theater, the Peace Center. Oh my God, it was incredible and like such a state of the art facility. Just um, so it, it really depends on where we are, but that's that's kind of the trend I've noticed. The newer the theater, the the better it is on us um, and the crew. You you talked uh, a little bit ago about people getting vacation time, and and part of your job is to help facilitate that. I'm. I'm curious, like when you sign on to this tour, are you agreeing to a set contract of time? Or are you just like, I'm on until we stop running? Like, what does, what does that look like for you? I, so they asked me for a six month commitment, um, which was fine, but I'm a little bit open-ended. My contract is, it depends really like the actors contract, the actors have a different union than the crew, then the crew has a different union than us. Um, so it really depends on what we negotiate. And, um, but generally speaking, I have a six month commitment. Um, but beyond that, I can stay on the whole time if I want to. Um, if I decide to go, I need to give them six weeks notice so they can find somebody else. And luckily I, I feel very protected in that way. If I decide that, you know, it's not working anymore. I absolutely not made that decision right now. Right now it's working and it's great and it's fun. And I'm in month five, but for our actors, it's a little bit different. Um, and they negotiate that differently depending on whether they're a swing or a principal. Um, and then the crew again, different than that, but generally they're going to ask you for a six month commitment. In terms of like, you know, the limited sense of job security that we can ever have as musicians, does that 
defined time period make you feel more secure? Or are you like looking six months down the road going, okay, if I leave this tour, it's, I feel like it's hard to dive back into those musical communities once you remove yourself from them for an extended period of time. Yeah, I, I feel, um, I, like, I like that flexibility. Um, I like knowing that if, if something else comes along that I'm not, I'm not tied into this. Um, but at the same time, I know that with my contract and the fact that I am protected with my union, that I can stay on this as long as I want. Um, I, I really, I feel very secure in that. Um, I think it's different for those folks who have a very strict six month contract and whether or not it's going to be renewed. I think that that makes it a little more difficult. And I know some of our actors who have left that, that that was a real issue for them. Um, but personally, the way that our contract is set up, I'm on a pamphlet B contract. That's sort of the highest touring tier contract that you can do with the Amer American Federation of Musicians. And that guarantees me a lot of job security. Um, so for me personally, I, I feel really secure with it. Um, but again, it, it differs. Um, as part of your duties in that contract, you talked a little bit about how you have the additional call for, for pedals and, and for basic setup. Are there other duties that as the conductor swing or the keys one seat in general that are above and beyond what a normal musician would have part of their contract? Like, I mean, do you have to play for like plug-in rehearsals and stuff like that? Or is that fall to someone higher up in the food chain? We, the, between the three of us as um, the keyboard players, we all split pretty evenly um, rehearsal duties because of the times we're living in, um, COVID makes it so that we have a lot more rehearsals than you typically would on a tour. Um, I've never been on a tour before and I've just been, re we rehearse every week. So that's not, you know, I don't know anything different, but from what, what my colleagues have told me, this is a very new thing. We are constantly moving swings in and out. And when that happens, you've got to, um, rehearse them and, and make sure they know the tracks they're doing. Um, we do, when we have new folks that are in, we do put in rehearsals and show conditions. And so we usually will rotate those between the, the three of us as keyboard players. But yeah, I, I get, you know, I get paid extra for rehearsals, which is always really great. Um, but we, um, we do have them every week and we, we kind of share the duties among the three of us. And that was something that, um, I, it's, it's, it's in my contract. It's, it's something that we kind of expect, like we know we're going to get paid extra for it, but that also it's just, it's kind of part of the deal. So now that you've had this experience with, with mean girls, I imagine people are, are clamoring to get you to be a part of their future productions. Are there shows in your mind that you would love to be a part of? Oh yeah. Um, I would love to get my hands on light in the piazza. Uh, such a juicy, juicy score and juicy keyword part. And I think it very much it plays to my strengths as a pianist. So I really hope that that happens. Um, I would love to music direct Spring Awakening. It's one of my very faves. Um, and I think, again, it's something that that is good for my skill set. Um, it would be a blast to get on six. Uh, and it's all girls, which is super fun. Um, that side note, I, 
I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, the amount of women that I have played with and since I've been on tour for five months is too low. Um, I mean, in countless cities, we're in a different city pretty much every week. And I think in five months, I've been in the pit with maybe four other women. Mm. And it's just not enough. And, and I would say the same goes for folks of color. Um, so uh, something like six is really enticing to me because it is a lot more diverse in terms of, of your, you know, your personnel. Um, but yeah, as I... Oh, Chicago, I, Chicago. Boy, I'd love to get my hands on Chicago. That would be so damn fun. Um, so yeah, there's, it's really weird because I don't really have a big musical theater vocabulary in terms of like shows. It's, it's again, I'm a classical girl and I, it, it, it's not something I've ever thought about a lot, but yeah, I definitely, definitely would love to do those and, and um, there, I know there are also shows that I absolutely would never take. I, not to shit on it, but I was offered to, to tour on Frozen before I got offered Mean Girls. And I kind of just don't give a crap about Frozen. I'll be really honest with you. I mean, a lot of people do. Good. I'm so glad. It's a great gig for a lot of people. Um, but I was like, no, I think I'm going to hate this. And then two months later, I got Mean Girls. So um, yeah, I feel... I feel lucky that I'm in a position right now in my career where I can be choosy. Um, but I'm hoping that this will, you know, open the door to those shows that I really, I really want to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're probably absolutely right that it does make a huge difference and it's, it is good that you can have a choice. I think of the people in the pit on Broadway who played Les Mis eight times a week for years, <laughs> like I, I, I would be dead inside if that was me. <laughs> Well, you know, John, go ahead. I was going to say, John, you would be dead inside after two performances of playing in the Les Mis pit because I know you and I know what you think about Les Mis. But please, but let's continue. be honest, I would have walked out halfway through the first performance. I mean, same. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> and maybe just killed any sort of job I had when I said that. But um, yeah, I, I think I will say, you know, we do eight shows a week, and that's a lot. And I play the same thing eight times a week, but Mean Girls is a blast to play and the music is fun and it hasn't gotten old yet and I'm, and I'm five months in. So um, I feel really glad about that. It, it, still, it still feels fresh and fun and um, it still doesn't quite, I mean, it's a job, but it still doesn't really feel like a job to me. It's, it's just still such a blast to do. So I feel very fortunate in that way. John and I, have already recorded the episode that's going to air the week after this interview, but that episode is is specifically just dedicated to Mean Girls. So in that week, you know, we give them the full rundown. We talk about the original creative team and everyone involved, and we offer some of our thoughts about it. But I'm curious to hear from you as someone who is now intimately familiar with the show. What are, what are some things that you can share about it that uh, our musical theater loving audience would be eager to hear about? it's there's so many jokes like the jokes are like bam 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 it's like because it was created by tv folks tina fey and her husband jeff richmond um it very much has that feel you know and the audience it it almost gives you like that laugh track energy like when you watch a sitcom because the jokes are designed in such a way that we that becomes very integrated into the show um, and it really does feel like you're watching a TV show. But I think because of that, um, 
my family, obviously, and my husband have seen the show multiple times at this point, and they're actually really glad because it helps them catch all of the jokes. There are so many. I mean, the way Tina Fey writes are just a mile a minute. And um, that, I think, is very unique to this show. Um, but also, yeah, it's just, it's sort of, it's sort of one of those that you have to kind of watch a few times to really catch it all. Um, but I think it makes, I think it gives a great energy, um, the audience, cause the audience is constantly engaged. Um, the bus effect when she gets hit by the bus is the, I laugh every time, like still it's the way we do it is so funny. I don't know if you all have seen the way that that works on stage. Not on stage, no. So the bus <laughs> comes out from the side of the stage on like a rock'em sock'em robot arm kind of thing, you know? And it goes bam! And it's it the the bus itself, like it moves in and out so fast that the prop, it they made it and it looks kind of blurry to give it that effect that it's going super fast. And it runs out, we black out, but on the LED screens, the animation is of Regina flying through the air and she flips over like three times and the audience like dies. I mean, it's the biggest, longest laugh and it's so funny, but the effect of it is great because we've got the actress and the she stands on the stage on a, a spike that is her face <laughs> and she stands right there. So she knows she's gonna get hit by the bus <laughs> pops out and she's screaming and then all of a sudden bam and then the animation of her like flying head over heels is just like it's the funniest thing I've ever seen I think another scene that I love is when she sings um I want to watch the world burn and this is the burn book portion mm -hmm. and she comes out with a, like a copy machine everything's blacked out and just kind of her face glowing and she's making the copies of the burn book and as she's doing it on the animation screens it's like a copy like the actual copy machine light going it is the coolest effect and the way that they create that that whole montage of them fighting and there's flames but like the her coming out with the copy machine is the coolest thing i've ever seen it's just it's rad um but yeah i mean there are a, a million funny things in this show that i think keep people in stitches and that plus some really like rocket music it's fun it's like and you get i think you're gonna get the like the gamut of styles too you've got damien's you know very broadway the big tap numbers big jazz numbers you've got some really good rock stuff it's a whole lot of fun to listen to um and yeah just it's just so so funny so funny um it's a pleasure to listen to it every night honestly well i'm so glad you guys are, are taking it around the country because you know one of the things that we talked about in the episode that people will hear next week is that we got the sense we were missing something just in listening to it, not being able to to see it, and also not being able to hear Tina Fey's amazing book yes. just in, in listening to the cast exactly. recording. So it's it's good to hear you talk about all of the amazing visuals that you have going on. I would love to see the bus. That sounds fantastic. And uh, in particular, to hear that the book is as amazing as we speculated or will speculate yes. next week that it is because it's <laughs> Tina Fey. Come on. It's, and you know, what, what other thing I love about the book portion of it, that again, you're right, you don't get to hear when you're just listening to the soundtrack, is that it, 
it stays very true to the movie, but there are a lot of new jokes in it. There are some elements that are very different that, um, that I think she's, she's really crafted it really, really wonderfully. And it's just different enough that it's its own thing, but it's still very much what we know and love about Mean Girls. Yes, we have some of the, the best, you know, like the, everybody's favorite line. Every time Damien stands up and says, she doesn't even go here, scream. Classic howls of laughter it's because people just know it and they love it and they say it with him and it's the god it's so funny um but so it's it's great that she's kept some of the really iconic parts of mean girls but then it also has its own its own fun little things too um and i think that people who love mean girls really appreciate that there's a few new things added into it um it's but again, it's so brilliantly written that seeing it live, um, yeah, it really gives you the whole the whole experience, and it's it's so damn funny. It's it's just so damn funny. Well, Beth, thank you so much for taking some time out of your very very busy schedule to to talk with us and share this wonderful glimpse into your life as a touring conductor and musician. Uh, yeah. If people want to find out more about you and about the work that you're doing, is there anywhere they can go to find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at GrimTank, G-R-I-M-T-A-N-K. And um, I keep it on lockdown, but request me anyway. Um, you can follow me. I just have to approve it first. Um, you can also find Mean Girls on Insta, Mean Girls Broadway. Um, Google us. You can find our tour schedule. Um, all the things are very easily Googleable and findable on the internet. Um, so, Yeah come find us. We're literally in a new city every week. And um, there's usually always availability. It's it's not too difficult to get tickets. So yeah, just, um, and if you can't reach out, I'd be happy to help. No excuses, folks. Go see Mean Girls. It's going to be near you. Thank you so much, Beth. You're so welcome. This is a great, great time. Love to talk about it. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.